Open your Bibles to John's Gospel, please. John chapter 1. So we continue our march. Not a fast march, but our march through this wonderful Gospel. I told Dr. Lawson yesterday I appreciate him teeing it up for me this morning, setting it up. For the sermon, he said, to make sure that you all know and that I know that we should savor every line in this great gospel as we work our way through it. And this morning, we have one of the pivotal texts before us in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, Revelation and Rejection. The Word of God says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Father, unless You open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to believe, These words are foreign. They are indiscernible to those who are yet unborn and unspiritual. You tell us that it is only by the power of your Spirit can these things be known because these things are spiritually appraised. And so we ask, Father, that you would make these words clear to all who are here this morning, both those who believe and those who have yet to believe. And Father, we pray that You would work as only You can. At the same time, by Your Spirit, to bring those who are Yours to greater maturity and those who have not yet trusted in Christ to faith. And we pray that You would do both of those things this morning, Father, as we listen to this, Your inspired and inerrant and unfailing Word. Just as in the creation of this physical world when you speak life comes so speak this morning to dead hearts and to living hearts bring life where there is only death that christ would be all in all and that christ would be magnified for we prayed in his name amen throughout history trials have gripped and defined and shaped nations and cultures For years to come, this week in our own culture, in our own nation, that will inevitably prove true over time. But there is one trial that is presented to us that overshadows and supersedes every other trial in human history. And that is the trial of what we will do with Jesus. Just as Jesus says to His disciples in Matthew chapter 16, This is who men say that I am, but who do you say that I am? John's Gospel is that trial. As one reads the Gospel of John, and as we make our way through this Gospel, we find that it is 21 chapters of a trial in which evidence is presented. And it is not evidence that any of us may ignore 
or may pass on, or may come up as a hung jury on. The right verdict is demanded at every word and on every line. The Gospel of John presents a Jesus who must be accepted. Unlike other trials, other presentations in the Bible of Jesus, John's Gospel is front-loaded. It's helpful in a, in a myriad of ways, they all are, but John seems to be particularly concerned that we would grasp the severity and the meaning of what is to come by laying out essentially a miniature of the entire book in the first 18 verses of the first chapter. So that we have a roadmap, so that we understand where we're headed and we understand the, 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 the seriousness with which we must take this man called Jesus. Though the trial of Jesus features prominently toward the end of this gospel, and I mean his trial that we all think about before Pilate and before Caiaphas. The trial is also here this morning for us. In verses 9 through 11, we must do something, brothers and sisters. We must do something, friends, with what the Bible tells us about Jesus, who he is and what he has come to do. In short, the Messiah is Jesus. John is not concerned again with trying to prove to you that Jesus is the Messiah. John is concerned that the Messiah has already been described and you must believe that the Messiah is Jesus. He is the one who's come in fulfillment of all that has been prophesied about the saving one of Israel who would come to redeem his people from their sins. And so we are adjourned this morning as a jury. And we must either accept what is said about Jesus by faith, or we must reject it altogether. The evidence is for His glory. The evidences of Him as Messiah are irrefutable when we stop to look at them. And yet, as we read in verses 9-11, through 11, we read this jarring account that the Word has come in all of His glory, he has come in all of His fulfillment. He has come and He has made good on every single prophecy and promise that God has made from Genesis 3.15 onward. And yet in verses 9-11, through 11, they, out of hand, reject the Word. The Messiah. God made flesh. A rejection that will escalate until the Jewish people are so locked in conflict with their own Messiah, the one they had waited for, that they would kill Him. That's where we're headed in this Gospel. But John is concerned that we would not be those people. That we would instead be turned from the crowd that demanded His crucifixion and instead be turned to belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. These Jewish people that John ultimately speaks of in verse 11, in their unbelief, they eventually forfeit their right to the status as the Messiah's own. If you look at John chapter 12, verses 37 through 39, we read this, but though he had performed so many signs before them, it's emphatic, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? It's all been poured out. It's all been given. But who's believed it? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see and with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. He's quoting Isaiah directly. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him because of the Pharisees. They were not confessing him. I'm glad for two young men who not only believed but confessed this morning. Amen. For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Who do you say that the Messiah is? We must say that He is Jesus. We have no choice. We must be careful that we do not follow like the faithless Jewish people who rejected the Word and others who rejected Him. We must be found believing. So I want us to see in these three verses this morning some truths that we must believe and confess that our jury must come back with the right verdict on. That Jesus is Messiah. Number one this morning, the truth that is truly true, as Francis Schaeffer might say. Truth that is truly true. As we go back to verse 9, John opens this section of his introduction to the rest of the gospel by telling us what the light is like. What is Jesus like? What is the Messiah like? Who is He? And what is disclosed in these Three brief words in the Greek language uh, tell us something about the undeniable nature as to the fullness of God's revelation. I think about Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us, it literally reads, in one who is Son, the definitive Son of God, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. I want you to notice some specifics about Jesus here in John chapter 1 and verse 9. Two things stand out that we should grab onto and hold near and dear in our belief about Jesus. Number one, there is the duration of His coming. When John speaks of the light, the true light which comes into the world, John speaks about a permanent coming. The Savior that we have didn't come and make a cameo appearance and then exit stage right and leave us to our own devices. No, He came in humanity, clothed in flesh, and suffered along with us. And He knows all of our infirmities because He felt them Himself. And He came into the world in an enduring presence that had no beginning. He always had been. But that existence was then manifest in time and now carries on into eternity future where where Jesus this morning, brothers and sisters, be reminded of this on Thanksgiving. Jesus is not a spirit. He's not a mystical being. He is ascended bodily. And He will return bodily. And in between now and then, He is at the right hand of the Father speaking for you. 
He is your advocate in the courtroom of God. And He could only do so because He came. And in coming, He went. And in going, He remains and He will remain for all of eternity pleading His righteousness in our place. Because we have none of our own to offer. That is our Savior. That is the Messiah. That is Jesus. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of the world to the Father. You see, He knew that that was His plan all along. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the very end. It reminds me of what Hebrews says, that He not only saves, He saves to the uttermost, to the very end. He was, He came, He remains, He remains faithful to the covenantal relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit to come and exercise the power of the love of God and the salvation of sinners and the saving of God's people that cannot fail. Jesus, the faithful one. He has come and He remains. This this duration, this continuity is so critical that that John places that first in verse 9. He wants you to know that this is Messiah eternal who invaded time and who remains eternal interceding for His people. Secondly, we're pointed to the nature of His coming. Notice what John says, and in our Bibles, it's for, for sake of ease of reading that comes first in the English, although it's second in the language in which John wrote it, there was the true light. See, Jesus has not only come as the eternal one, He has come as the true one, the true light. Now, this is not to suggest, if you go back up to verses 6-8, through eight, as we discussed two weeks ago, there, this is not to say that John the Baptist was a liar. It's not saying Jesus is true, but John not so much. What is being communicated here rather is that Jesus is the perfect light. He's the final light. He is is the full light. Other men have some truth about Jesus. Jesus is all truth. And so as He comes as the true light, He outshines all the other lights that have come before Him. It's not that they're not true. It's just that He's complete. You know, any of us, even on our best day, we're not 100% right about anything, are we? You know, we, 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 at best, we're probably B-average theologians. And if we knew where the holes were, we'd fix them, right? But Jesus has no holes. Jesus is perfect. He is full truth. And He comes, and He comes in this durative sense that He's not going anywhere once He's come. And He will save His people. Every prophet before Jesus had told the truth as much as they knew the truth, but Jesus Himself is the truth. God gave them only limited understanding about Jesus. Jesus reveals God because He is God, and that's why the writer of Hebrews can say what He says. He is the exact representation of the One who sent Him. There is nothing about God left to be learned that cannot be learned from the life of Jesus. He's complete. It's over. It's final. 
And so we rejoice that the light has come and, and the true light has come. And man, what a great time to look at this text right before Christmas. Because we all remember that's what we're celebrating. The true light has come. John will elaborate further on the superlative nature of Christ at the end of this prologue, referring to Christ as the fullness of God. The completeness of God. When the true light came, nothing is left that still needs to be revealed. Nothing further needs to be known. And oh, brothers and sisters, if this more than anything should inspire in us a boldness and a passion to go out into the world in which we live and preach Christ. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need further arguments. We don't need more truth. We need to speak up and say what God has already said in Christ and let Christ do the saving. That's what John does. Here he is. Take it or leave it. But here's the truth. And here's what you must believe. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You don't have a choice, Nicodemus. Do we talk about Jesus like that? Are we confident in Jesus like that? Are we enraptured as John is with Jesus? We should be. We should be. And if we're not, it's because we haven't looked closely enough at the light. There's absolute perfection and completion in the light that John preaches in verse 9, Jesus, doesn't he, often refers to himself as the light, as unadulterated light and truth. John eight twelve, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. John 9, 5, while, I'm, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There is no other light. So true, so true, Jesus is the true light. The superior light. The light to end all other lights. There's not a superlative strong enough to voice that would fully express the glories of Jesus. Language only goes so far. And time only lasts so long to be able to fully and adequately express the glories of of the true light. But that's okay, brothers and sisters. We have eternity. And we have glorified bodies and glorified minds and glorified tongues that are coming. And when they come, we will be able to sing more fully, more adequately, the glories of Jesus. He satisfies us forever just as He saves forever. John 6.32 Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread. See, there's that term again, out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine again. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. 
What a satisfying life. And what a tragedy to reject Jesus and finish out that verse, for apart from me you can do nothing. To live apart from Christ, to live apart from this true light, is to live a life of absolute dissatisfaction. Like a dark room where the window is opened, there's an invasion of light, a complete invasion of light into the room. Nothing is hidden. Everything is now revealed. That's what Jesus did when He came. But then secondly, we're looking at the truth in full disclosure. Now I want you to see the truth for full accountability. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Not only does Jesus come as the true and perfect and complete light and end forever the need for further light or lights, His coming is a line in the sand so that there is perfect clarity But with perfect clarity, brothers and sisters, and I think we would all amen this. There's perfect clarity in who Jesus is. But what is difficult to now swallow is that with perfect clarity comes unavoidable liability. You've now heard the truth. And you must reckon with the truth. You cannot leave the same as when you came in. When Jesus is revealed, He holds over us an accountability for the truth that we've heard. Once light is spread, truth is known that cannot be avoided. You can't unsee the truth of Jesus once He pierces our minds. We have to deal with what the light reveals. And all men now, as John says, become accountable to this light in all of His far-reaching illumination. And let's face it, according to Romans chapter 1, that's everybody in every age. There's no one who will stand before God and give a valid excuse. All men are accountable to this light. Leon Morris writes in his commentary, John is concerned that we should miss neither the good news of the incarnation of God nor the tragedy of the human rejection of God. And in this particular passage, John moves quickly from the astounding and hope-giving light and truth to setting us in the sobering reality of the accountability that is coming. I want you to notice the text. Look down at your Bibles. This light, when it comes into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world... And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Notice how many times John uses the term world. Now, the, the, world, the term world is the Greek word cosmos, which you're familiar with. That's, we still use that in our vernacular from time to time. The cosmos. And it can refer to several things that you need to be aware of this morning. It can refer to the totality of the universe and all that it contains. Uh, Think about Romans 1, the created world, and all men see the created world. Yes, they do. Therefore, they are accountable, right? That's what Paul says. But the second way the term world or cosmos can be used is to refer to what you're sitting on this morning. That's terra firma. 
the actual planet itself. But lastly, it can refer to the world's fallen system of sin and darkness. A world that is hostile to God. Think about how you've probably used this word in your past. They are worldly. We still use it in the same context and in the same way as an adjective. And John almost always uses the term, almost, not always, but almost always uses the term world to communicate that last last idea. The idea of a fallen world that is hostile to God, that lives in rebellion towards God. In fact, John uses the term cosmos 78 times in his Gospel. Matthew only uses it eight times. And Luke and Mark only use it three times. So it becomes a very important theme in John's Gospel to think about this light that has invaded this world. This bankrupt and fallen and depraved system of men that has rejected God, who has rejected the light. Men who are enslaved and who love their sin and who love to dwell in their slavery to sin. Into that world, John says, the light has come. Now think about it. You've had prophets for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years who have told the truth about who Jesus is. They have prophesied about His coming. They have made promises from God to the nation of Israel. They have given everything that could possibly be given. And the people who are waiting on the Messiah, who've heard the prophets preach, they're sitting there looking up, looking for Jesus. And when Jesus comes, they completely ignore Him. While they're waiting! While they're listening! And John says, you want to know why that happened? It's not for lack of information. It's from lack of transformation. They haven't believed. All the facts are there. All the promises are there. And yet they reject the light because they are part of this world. John 3.19, Jesus, this is the judgment. Here's judgment, folks. The light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than the light. Capital L, referring to himself. For their deeds were evil. We all want to believe that mankind, and this is part of our fallenness, is basically good. And that really everyone loves Jesus. They just need a little more impetus to follow Jesus. That's not it. We are sinners. Born in rebellion against God. And it takes an invasion of the light to change that. Otherwise, it's no good. It's no use. And John here contrasting now world and light. And light that has invaded a world and a world that hey, continues to reject the light. Why? Because there wasn't enough information? No. Because they weren't outwardly spiritual enough? No, they were very pious people. But because their hearts are dark. 
because they love their deeds, their evil deeds, their sinful nature, their pride, their self-reliance and self-sufficiency. They love that more than Jesus. It is a wicked and dark world against which the brightness of the glory of His light now shines. And this is where we would get off. What? I came. This is the way you treat me. I'm done. You see, Jesus would be right and God would be right if He damned every human being to hell. The question is not, why doesn't God just save everyone? The question is, why does God save anyone? D.A. Carson writes this, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. We come this morning to acknowledge Christ and we, have, we can only do so, brothers and sisters, because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. The light has pierced and illuminated and now we believe. Because in our own selves, We are the world. We are the system of darkness that hates the light. Left to our own devices. And so when John speaks of the world, he's not doing so in a hopeful way that presents this, you know, rainbows and unicorns outlook where everything is a level playing field and where all men are going to respond in a positive light to the light. It's not universalism. Or the potential in all men and their own goodness to come to light. No, no, it's none of that. John is emphasizing this is a fallen, terrible, terrible world. You want proof of that? Just study history. Wherever the gospel is preached, mankind flourishes. Period. You take Christ out. It is a dark place. And it gets darker by the day. He's not in a world of good people. John is not affirming these people's goodness to them. John fifteen nineteen. If Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, speaking of His disciples, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. They hate Him. They hate the light. So don't be surprised when they hate you because you follow the light. What makes Jesus the incredible Savior He is in part is that He came into the world to take out of the world those who are His and don't really belong to the world. Isn't that good news? We don't belong to the world. Hey Christian, go out and live with hope. Live without fear. Preach with boldness. Proclaim with boldness. You don't belong to them. doesn't matter what they say about you or even do to you. You belong to the light. And He's called you out of the world and out of darkness into His marvelous light. And when John writes that He enlightens every man, that does not mean that He saves every man. I know some have read that verse and interpreted it that way, and that's just tragic. That's universalism. That's not what Jesus does. But He does come and the light does hold all men accountable. And this must be concluded that He is the only light. 
for men. We understand, we can understand this last phrase of verse 9 in, in one of two ways. Every man, if that refers to salvation, it must be taken that he is the only Savior coming into the world for all men. In other words, there is no other Savior. As much for the Jews as for the Gentiles, the slave and the free, the male and the female, the old and the young, the rich and the poor. doesn't matter. He's the Savior for all men. He's the Savior of all men without distinction. He saves everyone the same. But He's not the Savior of all men without exception. In other words, that all men will come to the light. We know that can't be true because there is a place that Jesus says called hell for those who reject Him. By the way, while we're on the topic of hell, Jesus preached more about hell than He ever did of heaven. Three times as many times in the Gospels. And so it, it, is, it, is, it is inaccurate, it's unfaithful, it's unloving to suggest that He's the Savior of all men without exception. But what we can say is that He is the Savior of all men without distinction. He'll save anyone. You don't have to be Jew. You don't have to be Gentile. You don't have to be male. or female. He saves all men. All kinds of men. And this is what John speaks of here. And not only does, is He the Savior for all men, the only one who can save men, but He is the one who comes to hold all men accountable. So that when He came, when the light came, their darkness is intensified in their rejection of Him. He's in, he is enlightened in the sense that they are now accountable to Him. And they are accountable and must believe in Him. These are the things being fully disclosed about the light by His coming into this sinful domain. But I want you to notice secondly, and this lastly, it's not only truth that is truly true, it is truth that divides It's truth that divides. I don't know about you. I don't like division. I don't like confrontation. But if we love the Lord and we love the truth, we have to come to terms with the fact that our truth is going to be divisive. We can be kind as we want. We should be loving as we can possibly be with the Lord's help. But what we say will offend. And it will divide. And we have to be okay with that. Because Jesus Himself was, was quite divisive in what He preached. Look at verses 10 and 11. He was in the world. Again, the world was made through Him. The world did not know Him. He came to His own. And those who were His own did not receive Him. Jesus caused division. He's a polarizing figure. And He should be. And He is meant to be. The response to the light, by and large, in Jesus' day was a sad and divisive one, just as it is in our day. In these verses, John demonstrates the response to Jesus in various realms, and we'll walk quickly through those. Each realm and their rejection grows more restricted and more narrow and more tragic. Again, three times in verse 10, the, the term cosmos is used when John first uses it he appears to do so in reference to the entirety of the physical world. Not just terra firma, but 
places in the universe we don't even know about yet. Somebody posted a picture from their telescope that I saw this week. Absolutely mind-blowing. We'll never go there. It's too far away. But telescopes can capture light and stars and places in the universe we can't even fathom. And so when John says he came into the world, he was in the world, he's speaking of the entirety of what God has created. Refer back to verse 3 of this same chapter, would you? All things, all things, all things, all things came into being through him. And this is a reference to that all things, not just what we can see and what we can know, but, but things outside of this world, outside of this galaxy. Jesus came into that world. He made it. He knows it all. Every molecule in this world, Jesus knows because He made it. He came. He pierced that. He came in humanity to that world. And Matt, we can't. Roy and I were talking before church this morning about trying to get your mind around the fact that God became flesh. When Jesus came as that baby in Bethlehem, He knew things we will never know about this world in which we live. How crazy is that? He understands it. I have to think if He were here physically with us today, He'd laugh at us. We think we're so intelligent. We think we're so advanced. We don't know the half. And so he comes into that world, but then John goes on and he narrows the scope. He says, he came to his own. He came into this world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. Now it's speaking of the, the, the terra firma, the place where humanity dwells. He is here. This world is made through him. He commanded nature. And nature responded. In immediate obedience. And I know I've said this to you before, but I have a small mind, and this just is one of those things in Scripture that just I come back to often. Jesus says to the winds and the waves, be still. Okay, so the wind stops, but we've all been on a lake or the ocean after a storm passes but it takes a while for the waves and the storm surge to settle down but when jesus says to the wind and the waves stop and be still and both are no that is amazing he immediately stops the source and he immediately calms the effect that's the power of jesus in this world and so he he pierces this broad universe he comes into the world. The world in nature actually obeys him. But notice the last line. In the world, now speaking of that fallen, depraved system of sin and darkness, does not know him. The stars know him. The galaxies know him. The wind and the waves know Him. The loaves and the fishes know Him. But the very ones God created to be in His own image reject Him. Does that not cause a heaviness in your heart? 
to know that all of nature revered the light more than humanity revered the light. And we bear the image of God and we have the goal to do that? Who do we think we are? Second Corinthians 4.1 Therefore, since we have this ministry as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God. Brothers and sisters, it should break us that blindness so grips the world that it takes a sovereign act of God to remove the blindness and bring the light of faith and salvation into the heart of any sinner born out of that system and into His kingdom. That, that should grip us. There is no man-made technique There is no man persuasive enough to change the heart of a sinner. Because you can't raise the dead, and neither can I. But the light can. And when the light came into the world, that's exactly what he did. He began, spiritually speaking, raising the dead, transferring them from the kingdom of darkness, the world of darkness, to the world of light. To his everlasting We're so full of pride, we tend to think that men are morally neutral. (laughs) Neutral? You're hostile. Romans 5.8. John tells us a different reality. We're not only spiritually blind to let the light, uh, spiritually blind toward the light, we're hostile to the light. We don't know the light, and we don't want to know the light, and we will fight knowing the light. The word in reference here is not mere cognitive disconnect. The world did not know him. It is a failure or refusal to recognize him, according to Murray Harris. Is absolute willful ignorance born out of rebellion from Adam to us. Every human being. But what is worse is what follows. George Hutchison writes this, As the great sin outside the church is ignorance. Be convicted. Are you ready? As the great sin outside the church of the light is ignorance and not acknowledging and glorifying God, so the great sin within the church is contempt for Christ and not embracing Him, nor His offer. For the world knew Him not, but notice what verse 11 says, His own received Him not. Do you hear that? Are you here this morning and you've been in church maybe for a few years, maybe for your whole life, and yet you've rejected the light? You've accepted some system of religiosity, but you have rejected the light? You're no better off than the world. 
Your future is no brighter than the mass murderer or the most scandalous person you can think of. He came to His own. His own did not receive Him. Again, I'd rather be ignorant than held in contempt. It would be better to be ignorant than to know and reject. If that is you this morning, you must come to Christ. You must repent of your sins and place your faith in Him who lived a perfect life where you could not live that life and die to pay for your sins because He had none of His own to carry to the cross. So that He could be raised on the third day and give you His life in exchange for your death. Verse 11, the light penetrated. The, the word here in verse 11 came to his own. The word own here literally can be translated household. He came home. Came home. And what happened when Jesus came home? His own relatives, his own kinsmen, fellow Jews, killed him. Throughout the Gospel, we find tragic accounts where his own mother and half-brothers and half-sisters think he's crazy and try to bring him home to, Jesus, take your medicine and just be quiet. Go to bed. You're embarrassing all of us. He came to his own household and his own household did not receive him. By God's grace, some of them came to receive Him, but not all did. Get the picture. Again, the Jews who've been sitting for millennia waiting for the promised One to come. The Redeemer, their hope of Israel to come. He comes and He's sitting right beside Him. You can kind of get the picture. Have you ever had this happen? Somebody's really focused on something. And you sit down beside Him, they're completely oblivious to the fact you're there. So what are you looking at? Oh, I was looking for you! Jesus says to Israel, who are you looking for? What are you looking at? I'm right here. I'm not out there, I'm here. I've come, and yet when He tells them that He's come, they reject Him in utter rebellion. And they say some of the most heinous things about Him. They, they hate Him. They, 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 they end up crucifying Him. No, I know. Jesus laid His life down. I get that. But he laid it down to his own countrymen. Who then handed him over to pagans. To die a death that their own law pronounces a curse on. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's what they did with the light. Hutchison continues, while the unbelieving heathen may be an enemy towards the Lord, the hypocritical church member is a traitor. Knew the truth and rejected. The former is without excuse, but the latter has provoked the anger of the Holy One of Israel. The greatest tragedy in human history isn't the Titanic. It's not war. It's not famine. It's those who refuse to believe the light God sent into the world as the only Savior for mankind. That's the great tragedy. 
we must, brothers and sisters, sit as the jury and we must render verdict. Who do you say Jesus is? Number one. Number two, what will you do with the light that Jesus is? Just as important now as who Jesus is is who you are. Are you one who doesn't know? Are you one who is rejecting what you do know? Or are you one who believes? Let's bow in prayer. Again, John's Gospel, he says in John chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you might believe. So I'll ask you one more time. Do you believe? If you're here this morning and you do not believe, don't leave this building because you are accountable to the light. And God will not hold you guiltless if you walk out of the building this morning for that rejection. Come to the light. Embrace Christ in faith. Confess your sins to Him boldly knowing that He forgives ultimately, fully, eternally, finally, joyfully. Confess your sins and receive what He has done for you. If you say, I'm still confused. I am available after the service. Please don't leave until you pull me aside so that we can talk further. For those of you who are believers, you have come to that light and you believe that light and you have accepted that light. Don't let that light grow dim or faint, Christian. Meditate on fully what Christ has done for you. Let that be the real cause of your thanksgiving this week. Understanding that you who are once darkness are now light in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we understand that we did nothing to deserve the light. We can do nothing apart from the light. And in Your grace, and in Your love, and in Your mercy, You sent the light. And You've pierced our darkness. And You have provided the way of salvation through the One who is the Savior for all mankind. Father, if there's one here this morning and in a room this size that's entirely probable, who's not accepted Jesus Christ and His life and His work, His death, His burial, His resurrection on their behalf. Grant them eyes to see, faith to believe, repentance to be humbled and confess, so that they might come to Christ and be forgiven of their sins. For those of us, Father, whose lives You invaded, whom You have saved, may our thanksgiving be fresh and new every day, growing day upon day, in grace upon grace, as we reflect on who You are and what You've done.
We love You, Lord Jesus, because You first loved us. And You came for us. And we praise You for that. We pray these things and we ask that You would do them for Your own name's sake.